สนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโทอาระหะโทสมมาสมบุตตสะอาภารุธาเดสังมัตสัตถวราเยสุรวันธาบมุจันตุสัทธเ
Well, they they right to to uh, the three characteristics of of things that exist. They're called three characteristics of existence. And existence is uh, existing is implies like is like a, it means to come forth. That so means birth and death. Um, uh, so the characteristics of ex- of all that exists is that it's impermanent, uh, unsatisfying in itself. It's changing and impermanent, unsatisfactory, and it's not self. So then the the not self or the anatta then, as you realize anatta, then you're realizing the ultimate the ultimate truth. <coughs> which is a realizing the the amata dhamma or the deathless reality, which is, and then it says is not self. It means it's not uh, it's not a personal thing. I think we're always we're we're always, you know, we're getting we're kind of getting beyond the the assumptions we make from the self view, like most. Like you, our minds are conditioned always to interpret experience in terms of me and mine. So, so that this is a, a way of breaking out of that interpretation. So, sapeid tamma anatta the vichanda sapeid sankarani cha sapeid tamma anatta the sapeid sankarani cha all conditions are impermanent sapeid tamma anatta all dhamma is not is uh, anatta. So that that is a statement to be realized, not to be grasped. Yes. You mentioned when you first started meditating in, in Thailand, you had to uh, deal with a lot of uh, uh, anger. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, it lasted for a couple of months, and then you had a vision of uh, purity and light, and. Uh, uh, <laughs> I just wanted to, I didn't think that was so funny. <laughs> I, I just wondered, uh, did that arise spontaneously, or did you have to uh, conjure it up with by thinking of past angry experiences, or and also how did it manifest in the body? Well, I was in. Uh I was alone for, you know, they had this, this kind of practice where you go into a little hut and then you stay there till you get some insight. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then it was, uh, which I quite liked, uh, but, the, but I was also, uh, I just, Ordained, you know, as a samanera. So I come from uh, from lay life, uh, where and I'd done some meditation in Bangkok at one of the temples there. So I started meditating at a at a temple in Bangkok for about six months, and uh, so I learned various. I learned a technique, meditation kind of practice. 
but um, then I decided to, I just didn't want to ordain in Bangkok because I knew too many people and too busy a place, so I, or I chose Nong Khai, which is up on the borders of Laos, and, and then uh, this monastery was, was uh, uh, just outside, about a mile outside of the town of Nong Khai, in, in a forest, kind of scrubby, scrubby forests, not very beautiful forests. And then I couldn't speak Thai either, so, and nobody could speak English. I was pretty much alone, you know, without anyone to talk to, which was quite fine with me. But there was, but then what happened was, from a busy life, uh, I was about 32 years old at the time, so I, I, you know, I was at a point in my life where I was uh, very weary of the world. I saw through so many things and and had no real interest in worldly things anymore. So I was pretty much committed to uh, to this practice, uh, and I had no longing for for anything. So I could stay there. I mean, even though it, it was pretty rough going the first couple of months, uh, in terms of it was you know like living in hell when your mind is filled with anger and hatred, but I had no other thing I wanted to do. No, like I had no interest in travel or in in uh, doing anything, seeking anything. So it was a, a good place in my life. I, mean, I was, I would have probably, I felt like a kind of burnt-out case. You know, like a, like someone who just experienced life and had become burnt out by it and I, I had no kind of no kind of enthusiasm for life but I wasn't suicidal either so it was uh, in a spiritual way it was a kind of weariness of the because I could see that, that that life didn't have much of a meaning in the way I was living it and, and I didn't see anyone that I knew was living life in any way that I wanted to. And I didn't have any buddy who I admired or wanted to emulate except the Buddha. So I had a tremendous respect for the Buddha. So then in this kuti I would just uh, um, I mean I tried all these meditation techniques that I'd learned in Bangkok and uh, and they, you know, when you're alone, you know, day after day, day and night, with no, no, nothing, nothing to do, and they bring you one meal before noon, and then maybe a flask of hot water in the evening, <laughs> uh, and then, uh, uh, just, and there's nothing to do. So you, uh, just, I had one book called The Word of the Buddha, which I used in, in English. So I sat there, and then because there was no, there was nothing to do, you know, I, I could only sit for so long, and then I'd try walking practice, but it, this incredible negativity started coming up. Just, uh, 
just uh, a lot of aversion and anger that that had been uh, obviously repressed emotions of 32 years. Uh, so it, it was bubbling up and it was, uh, and, and I tried to distract myself in various ways. Uh, I was telling you about ranging the, the things in the cootie this way and then that way, do anything to have, just have something to do. Uh, I'd, I'd look out and there are a lot of dogs in the monasteries. So I'd, I'd kind of spend hours looking at the dogs and figuring out what, <laughs> doing anything that was around, you know, to, so something to do. And, and inevitably there, you know, there's just me in this place and then the, the, uh, uh, and this, and this ongoing kind of uh, negativity. So I just started to watch it, and just, and it took quite quite a while. But it, because it was over a long period of, say, for t- several months, seemed like, you know, eons of time when you're in it. But then, because I did kind of accept it and kind of resign myself to it, I eventually it wore out. It's like like something had, you know, because I wasn't repressing or struggling with it, I just let it come up and eventually it just kind of, all that negativity went out and so then when it was gone, then I woke up and I, and the mind was just naturally very bright. Were you, were you mulling over things in the past, the anger producing incidences in your past that brought it up or did it just, it just come up, just, I remembered everything. Uh, almost everything in my past, I my memory just started. You know, things I had forgotten completely. I was suddenly remembering everything, and uh, the whole it seemed like whole review of my life was taking place without me crying. There's just nothing else to do but you know your memories are entertaining you. Then. Then and then I then this anger, you know, just some days it's just like uh, hatred for everything, everybody. Just this an anger and resentment uh, towards parents, towards anyone I can think of. <laughs> when your mind's in that state, it just sees everything with these evil red eyes. <laughs> And then it, and since, since I didn't try to stop it or resist it, I didn't, like, even a lot of it was quite crazy in itself, yeah, I didn't go crazy. I never felt like I was going crazy, but I was, a lot of it was crazy in, in how it manifested, you know, it was, it was you know, madness and and anger and evil and various sorts, but it wasn't, I never felt like I was going crazy. You know what I mean? It was, mm-hmm. it was uh, I realize I'm, pr- I'm a pretty strong person <laughs> because some people go crazy under those conditions. They, they always, they, they get, they start attaching, identifying with them, with it. 
something in me knew no not to do that so I could and then I had this word of the Buddha this book uh, and Buddha's teachings of the Four Noble Truths so I kind of kept trying to put everything in the context of that of the Four Noble Truths so that it was it worked you know in a way of, of dealing with this this uh, it was like a purification that was taking place because the the state of that purity was it was quite natural. It wasn't like a, when it was gone, then the mind was in this very bright, radiant. Uh, naturally, that way, it wasn't like a created state of mind. Yeah, well, I, I was, you know, I had a lot of pain, and, and uh, I don't remember all of it. I just remember feeling, you know, just strange things would happen. But they more or less left me to, uh, they left me to it. One one e- one evening, I was somebody gave me a Buddha image about this this big and you know, quite nice one, and so I I had it on this little table by the window, and uh, it was dark, very black night, and I lit a candle and put it underneath, and then the flames, the kind of the shadows would would light the face of the Buddha, but the lighting was rather eerie, and so I was sitting there and I looking at this, contemplating the Buddha, and the, suddenly it looked very evil, and so I got, <laughs> started thinking, oh, the Buddha's evil, and I started getting really, really, uh, this, and then I looked in the room around me, and I thought, this, there's evil in this room. <laughs> and so I, I, I'm going to leave, so I walked out, and then, and then I was outside the kuti, and I saw evil all around me. <laughs> And then suddenly I saw that, 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 that I was just creating this sense of, you know, of evil. But uh, next morning I, I, mean I gave up, went back in and, and slept. Next, next day, next night I, uh, you know, I looked at the Buddha Rupa and it had this serene face of the Buddha. <laughs> it did give me the insight of how we create these things. We project, you know, like if I start start grasping this perception of evil and then it then it influences how I perceive, how I see experience. I got that insight through that. Well, it's, the, the Sangha is like you and me. <laughs> but it means, it, but actually it's, it's the supatipano, or those who practice in the right way and directly and so forth. But this means it's like you have, you have 
the Buddha, which is the, the knowing, the Dhamma, which is the known, and then, then the, the Sangha is the one who's practicing this knowing, you know, so that, that the, is, it's, it's like human, it's a community of human beings, uh, it's where the, the Buddha isn't a, isn't a human being per se, or, and the Dhamma is, these are the, these are the, the first two refuges, and then the Sangha is like the community, or the church, or the, the group. So that we're we're also taking refuge in the group rather than in personal things or in a in an ethnic background or a class or a gender or or race or nationality. It's in sangha that our refuge lies. So it, it's like it it gives you the sense of belonging to to a to a group, and you're you're taking refuge with. With other, with uh, with all who are practicing in the right way. So that, like when we talk about the sangha, it's, it's, uh, it has this sense of uh, a community or communion of beings that that uh, are we all moving in this direction, aiming to right practice, and our but this community of beings is. Uh, is uh, separate individuals, and we all have our own, you know, characteristics and karmas and so forth. But the emphasis isn't on that, on the difference, but on the common ground of practice, practicing in the right way. Well, this also implies, it doesn't imply, it also implies all, all beings who are practicing the right way, whether they're near or far. That gives you a sense that if you're isolated alone, it, it does give you this sense of being connected to, in the universe, to, to others. Uh, and then, then also, you find in your life you are, you know, in so many ways, like in a retreat. Or there is, the, and like as, you know, like I travel a lot, and uh, um, so I find that I, as a Buddhist monk, I, I generally, uh, wherever I go, I'm I'm with other Buddhists, so it. It's like uh, you're you're with your family wherever you are on this planet. Because I I, just, I hardly ever go to some place where you know I, because I go by invitations. Then I'm always kind of going with in other Buddhists, whether they're in Thailand or in Sri Lanka or in Australia, New Zealand or Switzerland or California, wherever. Like Ajahn Virudam was on this uh, walking trip through Poland now, and he's meeting Buddhists, and they give a talk in Vilnius and Lithuania, a Buddhist group there, and then going on to Latvia. <laughs> Even in the most unlikely places, he's, there's this sense of, 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 of a common interest that transcends, uh, say, 
ethnic or national identities. So you, you know, you find you you find this sense of not being like a foreigner. Like I've I've lived in England twenty one years, and I've never been here. I was never in England before as a Buddhist monk, or as a, as a layperson. I was never never visited. So I've only known England through Buddhism, but it's like also because of that I've never felt like a foreigner because the the common ground of Buddhist of Buddha Dhamma you're meeting people who 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 have the same interests and and that interest is very important so it 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 the kind of ethnic national differences fade into insignificance for that that sense of uh, the bonding that comes through the Dhamma, Buddha Dhamma Sangha. And that, that's quite one of the wonderful things I find in in uh, the Buddhist world, wherever I go, Western Australia, imagine going to, never even, never even thought of going to Western Australia. Even my wildest traveling fantasies, I never, never thought of that. Then uh, New Zealand, then all Buddhists that I meet. Those are all Buddhist countries. I never meet any of the rest. <laughs> Italy. I, I go to Italy. There must be a Buddhist country because I only meet Buddhists. <laughs> Even when one time I, was, I went to the Vatican, I took this Thai monk... <coughs> Tanjil Kun Rajatamani Tate, who's a famous monk in Bangkok, and he's written a lot of kind of polemic uh, treatises on uh, against Catholicism. <laughs> and so, so I uh, I took him to Rome, and I deliberately took him to the Vatican. Entered <laughs> 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 the Vatican, and, and some somebody came up and started. Uh, Paying respect to Italian to to Chaukun and uh, and uh, saying how much better Buddhist monks are than Roman Catholic monks. Slightly <laughs> 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 <Very> strange. Could you use the expression "sound of silence"? It is a, it's a kind of ineffable, uh, you know, because as you as you uh, 
just pay attention in the present, then then the that that sustained attention in the present helps to change your 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 way of your perceptional your your conditioned view of yourself and and the the world because the usually the the worldly view is very much dependent on a, on an on on uh, going from one thing to another rather than watching and listening so those like sound of silence or some people see it in terms of of uh, space or or light uh, but all these convey a sense of boundlessness infinity uh, uh, rather than of uh, being um, bound into a, a form or a state or a, or a habit. So this is where it, it's uh, uh, how people experience it sometimes is you know, quite individual. It's not like uh, like one person I know, Ananda. She experiences. Uh, Infinity through light, not through the sound of silence. Also, can she hear the sound of silence? She doesn't know what that is, but she knows light. And so, I mean, it's it's just you know, I don't know, I don't understand it myself. But for me, the the uh, I, I experience this this uh, sound of silence, this kind of emptiness, other uh, high pitch kind of electric ringing. Background sound, a hum. Does it vary in strength? It can. It sometimes when you're not used to it, then it when you first pick it up, then you know you think first you think it's maybe when I first heard it was in. Thailand, I, mean, I thought it was just insects, or the because there's a lot of humming and that of of life, insect life there. But then I began to realize it wasn't that, and then um, thought maybe it was a tinnitus kind of ear problem, <laughs> and. Uh, and uh, then, uh, then, then sometimes it would can become on very loud, kind of really loud and and horrible. But but they after a while it now it's just over years now it's just a, this it's a beautiful kind of hum in the background that uh, that is always a rest, uh, you know, like a place that that conveys this state of emptiness. Or it's like a <coughs> like something you can use, not to make anything out of it you know, as a something in itself, but as a reference point to uh, to notice and to because that makes your mind in this very expansive gives it this expansive quality. Like I can hear it now and still talk to you. It's not like, like if I do the breath and I have to, you know, I have to st- 
stop looking at you, talking to you. And but this is this, this is an embracing thing, like space or or uh, and the sound of silence is like it's infinite. It has has that sense of in infinity and boundlessness, embracing everything. I use it most of the time now, yes. Because it really, the the mind then, and it helps to, then it, re, then it also gives you this very reflectiveness, that because your mind is, it stops the thought process. Because when you're with that, you're in that state, your mind isn't thinking. There's the tension and listening. And then I can observe, like, the body or the sense, like, like I was telling somebody today, I've, I didn't, I was such a, a kind of cerebral type person that I very much lived in the world of thoughts. And so I didn't feel much, you know, on the emotional plane. That, that's one of the anger when I first was so, had so much of it because I lived very much in my head and uh, wasn't very aware of feeling on the body. So then uh, over the years, this awareness of feeling here in the heart was something I couldn't, couldn't, I didn't feel much for a long time in the heart level of just physical sensation. And then as I, with the sound of silence, using that as a kind of resting place and then going to this part of my body, physical body, here, I began to, to rec- feel life, life more from this, from this heart level, which is a very different experience than from your head. And so it's more intuitive and, and, uh, and, uh, but also, because of the strong conditioning to think, then I tended to want to analyze. So I stopped, with the sound of silence, I could stop the thinking process, so then I could just be more with the, with the experience of my heart in the present, and how it feels. And it, so it has feelings that more like, like, um, kind of aches and, and a strange kind of feelings in it that uh, it's not not pleasant in itself but it's it, uh, it does uh, put you in touch with uh, with life and with the with the pain of life of not just personal but with life pain in general so you can see how compassion comes out of that this, uh, the karuna aspect comes from that level because you're, 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 it's more like a sense of pain as, as human, common human experience rather than thinking it's like my heart that has some kind of pain in it. That, that interpretation drops away toward a more, uh, sense of com- understanding that in terms of experience and and it being normal and natural rather than something wrong.
So, so then the so using that as a way of relating to other people more from that level is more you can tune in to their the suffering of others much more easily than where where before if I'm just coming from the head I don't tend to to notice other people what they're feeling very much <laughs> so I uh, I can be quite you know insensitive on the, if I'm just thinking about people in, on, the, on the intellectual level. It's interesting just to, 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 uh, to investigate that. So now there's a strong sense of this, this heartfelt way of relating to life, which, which gives you a lot more joy in your in life even though it, it's quite a, a strong feeling. It's not particularly pleasant, but it's not, but it, it somehow gives you a, puts you into that realm of, and out of this realm of just the cold, intellectual, insensitive, uh, reactive habits that I had before. That makes sense. Yeah, it's more much. It's intuitive, and the sound of silence helped to to uh, it helps to concentrate the mind in this wide place and stop the thinking, the thinking process. Because before the, if I don't stop the thinking process, then this feeling in the heart it goes into analysis of some sort, and I go fall back into the old worldly habits again. Where if I stay with just the, the, the heart, on the heart level, then it, I don't, you know, something changes, you know, it's more, it's intuitive and it's more real than, than this kind of uh, complicated tendency to want to fix everything with words and figure it all out. and analyze it. I can, I can um, I read and, and hear accounts of spontaneous experience of spaciousness, which I can relate to, but in, in my meditation practice, uh, as I said, that tends, tends not to be the case. And, and the current Forest Sangha newsletter, there's a talk by Ajahn Pasano, I think, where he speaks about Satipatthana and, and this is a, a stage where joy and he seems to say that you can give rise to joy in a sense somehow and uh, I wonder if that that's um, uh, 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 something that you can use as a technique I mean if, if, but it's something that you can do actively towards or 
Well, like the joy comes out of the uh, pureness of the heart. So, I mean, it's something you can't kind of create because it's a spontaneous thing. But what you can, like uh, the initial stages uh, of meditation with samatha practices, which are oftentimes based on positive thinking and, and kind of gladdening the mind with positive images. And then uh, gratitude. Well, that's, what, that's what I found helped me was uh, um, this gratitude called Gatanyu Gatavaiti in Pali where uh, because we, we uh, I had a lot, I felt a lot of gratitude to say Ajahn Chah and the Buddha and and uh, so this 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 uh, by contemplating gratitude or how you know how you know how uh, Lumpo Cha would take me as a, as a disciple and and how the Buddha established uh, a teaching that I can use in this century you know and contemplating like this and all that kind of help and support that I've had from other people, you know, like going to Thailand and you're a foreigner and then you want to become a monk and then everybody uh, wants you, wants to help, you know. So, you, you know, you, you feel this sense of everybody, you know, in Thailand wanted to help me become enlightened. I started thinking like this. Uh, so I, I started developing, just contemplating how, how uh, you know, the goodness of all that, how much generosity and good fortune I had. So then through that kind of contemplation, I, I, uh, it was in India, I was in India in 1974 on a, visiting the holy places and I had a strong Katanyu, Gataweti experience of gratitude. But it, it wasn't like you know, I could, I had to bring it up in consciousness, but then, so it started out more or less as a intellectual exercise and, and uh, based on, on thinking about gratitude. But then the actual experience was a spontaneous kind of insight, you know, where it really felt great. It wasn't just a, a kind of sentimental gratitude, it was a really profound sense of gratitude. But it took a while of this, of this uh, contemplating, before the actual um, profound katanyu started working for me. And then after that, the, that was after my six years in the robe. I uh, I found everything came much easier, like meditation, concentration. Everything it was much easier for me because I was, I wasn't coming from such a selfish uh, place anymore. Where before that, my practice was very much based on me trying to get something out of this. I'm <laughs> so incredibly selfish, you know. This once I'm going to get this samadhi. I'm going to. I want this peace. I want this. I want that. And. And, you know, it was very much self-centered in, in my approach to, to my spiritual life. 
and that did get me going and and that but then in the but it something wasn't working you know because I could never get very good concentration in that way and uh, and this negativity would you know there was still a a lot of uh, because selfishness is so so you know it tends to when you're the you're still caught in your self-importance. It does spoil experience. You have no joy in when you're selfish. No joy is just an impossible experience. So, I mean, I could work hard and do things and get through things and endure and survive, but there wasn't a lot of joy until this Katanyu experience. Yeah. That's like like the heart opening. Suddenly you're 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 operating from gratitude and and from uh, a joyful place rather than from this obsession with myself trying to get get something get enlightened. It's a uh, just a. Uh, that uh, you can't force it either. You know, you can't get rid of selfishness just because you you don't like it. And you don't. I mean, I didn't want to be selfish, but it was the only way I knew how to be. To let till I saw something better. <laughs> I mean, ideally, I didn't want to be selfish. That wasn't. But it was, it was the only, only thing I knew at that time. Letting go is the insight you get into the second noble truth through through seeing the causes of suffering. You have the insight uh, of letting go of the causes. So, like investigating the the four noble truths, then. The second noble truth was was uh, desire, the three kinds of desire, and grasping of those. So that's why, and I was probably what I was probably talking about was the uh, investigating desire and getting to know it, so that you really uh, know what it is through experience. And and then 
through that knowing, then you have the insight into letting go of it. Because you can you can have the idea you should let go of desire, but still, but you're attached to the idea of letting go. You you still so we tend to then suppress desire, or deny it, or 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 we have the desire to get rid of desire, which is another desire. <laughs> so that's the that's one of the three kinds of desire. Vipavadana is the desire to get rid of something. So. So the point is not to get rid of desire, but to know it, understand it. So then, the, once you re- really know, when you make desire a fully <coughs> conscious experience, like gamadana, a sensual desire, bhavadana, desire for becoming, vipavadana, desire for getting rid of things, when you, when you really... Uh, know those three kinds of desire then and the suffering that comes from grasping them then the inside is let go so it's a, like a, a a realization or or an insight into that like once you you know like grasping fire once you see that it hurts you let go <laughs> <laughs> Later teachers came uh, in India, like Padmasambhava and various other teachers in Mahayana. They seem to have picked up a few more. (laughs) 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 And uh, the reading some of the books which uh, the Dalai Lama has been involved uh, with the academic side in America, it seems uh, they are actually fascinated by the other leads. Do you have any thoughts on, like, say, Tantra and the various, you know, disciples, and what they call the wisdom, uh, medicine Buddha in, in, in Tibetan Buddhism, the various other things, which do seem to connect to Four Noble Truths, and they, they do, but uh, I just didn't seem to think that Buddha actually spoke about <coughs> do have a little bit of difficulty, and they do try to link it to the Four Noble Truths, but they, they seem to be quite different, aren't they, like Tantra and various, you know, centers in the body. Right, well, I think it's, uh, <coughs> the, I mean, there are so many other things, you know, like, like yoga and, uh, uh, the chakras and <coughs> tantra and all that. These, but mainly these are uh, 
ways of uh, understanding, say, uh, the uh, the body and the energy movements in the body. So I've never found those, uh, you know, difficult to accept because they do. They you know like like the chakra uh, system in yoga. I found very useful just to be able to be aware of the various uh, points in the body where you feel energy and shiftings of energy, and that so it brings attention to. But the the main thing is. The Buddha was teaching the the Four Noble Truths could contain that. You know, it it's uh, it wouldn't be uh, unless you're a very strict, uh, you know, in, interpretation interpret Buddha's teachings only from the very most narrow possible way. But but in uh, of course you get into Tibetan Buddhism, they've got. Uh, I, they've done so much literature and and, they, and their own style, and some of it uh, I find very useful. Some of it I don't like. Like with the tantra, that is uh, there's so many different ways to explain that. Yeah, but. Uh, but then, uh, with the, with the Western people, you see, they they oftentimes take the most kind of vulgar interpretation, make a big thing of it, and, and uh, especially if it's sexual, they they want they want to you know they make because the Western mind is is a basically pornographic one. We can't we can't uh, anything sexual is pornographic, and so we. We we don't see that we can't use sexual symbols as sacred symbols because culturally we see sex only as something pornographic. It's different than say uh, in a in a culture where the actual sexual symbols are put in the context of a sacred of union of union and uh, you know ultimate union. So, but that doesn't work for us. Because culturally, we're 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 we see we have a pornographic view. So this is just my my in, insight. Because, uh, but in the uh, the uh, but what works oftentimes for for edu- modern educated people is uh, more the psychological approach, which is. Like Theravada, uh, Vipassana, and that is very useful for Western educated people of the West who are well educated, usually are interested in psychology, gravitate into Vipassana. Because it can be, you can explain everything in psychological terms. But uh, also we 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 have different karmas, though that we tend to um, uh, you know some sometimes different things happen, and we see things where we have different kind of uh, experiences and different different uh, 
you know, when you when you talk to people and their experiences, sometimes they find you know it's hard to understand it because it's so kind of unique. But the main thing is to is to be aware. It would establish the teaching around the awareness of the condition being impermanent. And so that is always works, you know, no matter what. And it's in in the chakra system or in tantra or in in uh, whatever the the, uh, the 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 way the Buddha taught was in this para- universal paradigm of the condition uncondi- condition and unconditioned. So that that where that's where the the Buddhist uh, approach gives this kind of incredibly. Uh, profound but simple foundation to experience or anybody's experience no matter how you know uh, boring and uninteresting it might be or however absolutely fantastic it might be it's still uh, all conditions are impermanent so I remember <coughs> one time in at, when I was at not the abbot at Wat Nana Chat in Thailand and the and there were some monks there who'd been with me for several years, and and one was a one was a real kind of complaining monk, and so he and he said, "Oh, I sit, and nothing ever happens to me. I just feel pain and boredom." And uh, and then one day this this young Australian came, and he, and. Uh, he had tattoos all over his body, and he was very bright-eyed, and and uh, he wanted to be a, an agarika, so gave him the eight precepts. He wore white and gave him a few sessions of meditation. Immediately started experiencing all kinds of fantastic things, you know. <laughs> and and then he he and talked to this monk, you know, about the latest. And he said, "I was sitting there, and then this this, this kind of." beautiful blue light suddenly appeared to me and I felt my body just kind of become one with this light and, and it spread out to a whole universe. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this other monk, I don't say, man, why don't, I'm not doing, you know, I've been here a long time, this, this guy just, just, just came off the streets, probably just off drugs, and and uh, and here you know he has a few meditation lessons and he's experiencing you know complete union with the universe and, <laughs> and blue light of radiance. He says, I I just get pain and boredom. And I say, well, you know, pain and boredom and all that is still impermanent, not self. You know, whether it's blue lights and union with the universe or or pain in the knees and boredom. <coughs> and obviously the monk wasn't satisfied with that because he really wanted, you know, some wanted some entertainment rather than <laughs> than just his willingness to see things as they are. Uh, he was he was quibbling about the lack that his his experiences weren't interesting where the other one was. But the the Australian with the tattoos, he didn't last very long. <laughs> he uh he, he tended to have no kind of uh, grounding for it, and so after a while, he just 
you know, drifted on someplace else. But that, that's where, like even when uh, uh, you have, uh, like some, like you read about you having uh, miraculous powers and that's very attractive to people. And But we're always discouraged from doing that. And, and uh, because it, uh, you know, it's not the kind of, uh, it's not useful. It's, even if you can perform, you know, like walk on the water, or fly up in the air, or do uh, these kind of things, it's still impermanent and not self. And it can be just, uh, you know, inflate your ego and prevent you from realization. So the Buddha never praised it. Like, like one time, uh, a monk did showed off to some lay people his magical powers, and the Buddha really uh, scolded him. Said, what a cheap, kind of sleazy thing to do. He <laughs> 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 compared it like a prostitute showing a man her underwear. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is, uh, you know, these are just kind of little tricks that they still, in, you know, even though they might be impressive in worldly terms, uh, it, they're, they're nothing, you know, they're nothing terribly, um, they're nothing to, to aim at. So, the aim is always towards Nibbana rather than to having power and being special and, and all the rest. Then, then if those power, miraculous abilities come, then through your practice, then they're perfectly all right, because then you're, you've got the wisdom to use them in a skillful way, rather than to show off or, or use them to, to inflate your ego. There's not, and the, the miraculous power, there's anything wrong with them. It's just that that if one attaches to that and makes that you go, then you're stuck in that realm, which is still a samsara and still impermanent and and unsatisfying. So I think. Yes, yes. Good practice and uh, 
spiritual development that goes with the Sansaric uh, movement. Well, I agree. Kusala, Akusala, Apiyakata, Tamma, or the, you know, the skillful, not skillful, neither skillful nor unskillful Dhamma. So, it, it, but this is where, say, the, the transcendence is through awareness. So, so that the karma then is, uh, is, is made, it's, it's not personal anymore. Like when there's, when you really see things as they are, then the karma that one makes isn't isn't a personal thing. And so that's that's how we free ourselves from personal vipassana karma. And then, then then as the karma arises, like on a personal level, like in, in the present, like this is right now. There's a moment of this. We're here, sitting here. This is the vipaka of being born. Now we were born, and uh, we're here. You know, the body's like this, and uh, so that it's uh, so the vipaka is is ever present with us, the way it is. But when we're that's why in contemplating, we're 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 noticing the way it is in in terms of anicca dukkha rather than in terms of of being mine, personal karma. So then, then we relate to the vipaka in the present with wisdom, so that it then that vipaka karma is like it ceases, <coughs> and we're not creating new karma with it, because there's mindfulness, there's no attachment. So, so then, and there's wisdom, so that then the, that which is ex- happening now is is what it is, but then it's in the and it's following the law of karma, which are arri- what arises ceases. But it's not, no longer deluding the mind in gra- to grasping it itself. So like the mind of an arahant is, is not creating personal karma anymore. But still, an arahant still has to receive vipaka karma. So like like Angulimala, the famous who who was the mass murderer, the serial killer of India, and the Tantra Buddha and and tried to kill the Buddha, did you know, was uh, was hated and feared by millions of people and and then became and then he met the Buddha and became an arahant. But still he had to suffer the vipaka of of his uh, horrible path where everywhere people would uh, would abuse him. Uh, and but Angulimala was not did not get angry with that abuse. He just <coughs> ended up, you know, create karma with, with the vipaka. So when people throw rocks and they just accept that as a that's an extreme case, but <laughs> you know, one one does, you know, experience all kinds of, you know, even the the, the story of the Buddha. He had, the, you know, had to receive the vipaka of his life even after his enlightenment. Was, you know, people jealous of him and wanted to kill him and 
blame for things. And uh, I mean, it, the, when you read the story of the Lord Buddha in the scripture, uh, I mean, I've had a pretty easy life compared to <laughs> of the mind, you know, the, your memory, uh, the things you learn and all that, and that can go. But then there's, but then we're, we're now developing this intuitive awareness, which is here and now, and, and transcends the conditioning of the mind. So, so like with Ajahn Chah, he was, he was still here and now, even though his the conditioning of his mind didn't work so well anymore. So one always felt that even though he couldn't speak or that, he, you know, he was certainly here and now. And like when I'd go and visit him, uh, you know, he would, he would, when I talked to him, he'd certainly pay attention and he seemed interested in what I was saying. Uh, and he, he knew what was happening, but he had no way of communication. <laughs> so some people thought he was just, uh, uh, you know, that he didn't know what was happening, he was just out of it. But no, no, that wasn't. Because they, they're used to always identifying somebody with the conditioning of their mind, the ability to talk or to communicate or react. So, and then I, I met uh, this uh, Christian monk, uh, what's his name, the old one that lived in India in the ashram, Steve Griffith, Father B. Griffith. I met him, uh, what, seven, eight years ago in Berkeley, California. And he was staying at a Korean Zen mon uh, ashram in Berkeley, California. And uh, he was a super intellect. He'd written a lot of books and that. And uh, but he told me himself. He said he was a very bright, kind of radiant man. Uh, and he told me that he'd had a stroke the previous year, and a lot of his memory had. He'd lost a lot of his memory. And he says, "What a relief!" <laughs> really happy. <laughs> You know, who wants to remember everything? You know, have to, to live with memories. And so that, um, 
sometimes, you know, you know, if you're looking at it the right way, it might not be such a bad thing to lose your memory. But in terms of worldly, you know, the self view, it's rather frightening because we're so identified with memory that we, we, uh, you know, we, uh, we feel very threatened when, when it starts going. We, because we, we don't know anything else, but we, that's our sole way of looking at life and interpreting experiences through memory and perception. But I know my school has fairly good memories, and I can't speak from experience. I know, I know that, that the, uh, I know I don't feel any great interest in remembering things, and not that kind of mental conditioning anymore. I trust more in this awareness, this clarity, mental clarity in the present is where what I value and, and trust, rather than uh, trying to, uh, you know, learn Sanskrit at 63 or <laughs> study Abhidhamma or do some, you know, <laughs> write books and things like that. I'm more, more, yeah, prefer this, this, uh, kind of mental clarity that comes to mindfulness and uh, trying to hold my memories together and it, uh, the uh, Radha Krishna, Dr. Radha Krishna, the famous, was the president of India and he was a philosopher, he was a kind of brilliant, he had a, was a brilliant intellect and he, in the and the, the story of the, that when uh, he was still fairly young, he was ambassador to Moscow, and uh, he met somebody in Moscow, this, this palmist who was called Cairo, and Cairo read Dr. Ranakrishna's poem, and said, the last seven years of your life, you lose all your intelligence. And uh, Ranakrishna, of course, didn't think much of that, and didn't get much, you know, didn't seem interested in it. But that's actually what happened the last seven years of his life. Mm. It, all his, his brilliant intelligence dropped. And he, he just, uh, you know, but that is a, that is non-self. That, that all that, all those thoughts and all those years of those PhDs and those all the things you read and and all the things you're attached to you realize it's just it's just anicca dukkanata also. So then <coughs> this is why the Buddha emphasized this training of the mind to get back to the original clarity of being rather than you know, to kind of revive and prop up and renew the conditioning of it. 